Well, today we are going to get to the heart of this series. Today I'm going to reveal to you the biblical passage that's actually responsible for producing this series. You know, I shared with you when we opened up in this series, I shared with you that passage in Ezekiel 34, and I shared with you the fact that that passage was responsible for actually convicting me, the Holy Spirit convicting me, to actually go through with this series. However, it's not responsible for producing this series. There's actually another passage in Ezekiel, actually an entire chapter, that is responsible for actually producing this series. A couple years ago, I was reading through the Bible, I was reading through the book of Ezekiel, and I came across Ezekiel 14. Now you have to understand, this is a passage, I, I, I couldn't even count how many times I've read it, how many times I've read the chapter. But when I read it, which was roughly a couple years ago, two, three years ago, for the first time in my life, when I read this passage, it was almost like the dam broke. A dam exploded. A flood of emotion, a flood of concepts and thoughts had come into my head. My ears were smoking, if you will. And I had to sit back in my chair, and I was in awe. Today, I'm going to share with you that passage so that you understand where this series actually came from. So let's go to Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 1. We read, Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble in iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? So here we see some of the elders of Israel, they came before Ezekiel. And the Spirit of God reveals to Ezekiel that these men, they've actually set up idols in their hearts. They've set up things in their hearts that are making them stumble, that are seducing them, bringing them into bondage, into sin. Simply put, these men had removed the Lord God of Israel from the first position, from being the primary object of their affection. And their affection, their love, was transferred to their idols, to the things that they had set up in their hearts. Unfortunately, the reality of this nation is that it too has been given over to its idols, to the idols of its heart. I mean, just look around you. We're a nation that has immersed itself in idolatry. For example, how about our unquenchable thirst for wealth, for power, for success. At the very early stages of our lives, we're being primed. We're being taught to desire to pursue wealth, to pursue success according to the world's definition. Not according to the Bible's, but according to the world's. We're taught that monetary wealth is the true sign of success. And therefore, we step back, we admire, we revere those who build corporate empires. And we stand up and we look in awe at everything they have done. And what do we want to do? We want to emulate them. We want to emulate them because we want what they have. That's what we want to do. Even if it means compromising our ethics. Even if it means compromising that precious time that they're supposed to be spending with their children. Or their wife. They're willing to compromise everything. 
Countless men and women have turned their career into a god. All of what is perceived to be, in their mind, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of wealth. The Bible has this to offer us in wisdom. Proverbs 23, verse 4, Do not overwork to be rich, because of your own understanding, cease. This is a warning to us. To everyone living in this nation, do not overwork to be rich. It will be your failure. It will be your fall. Proverbs 1.19 says, So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. Understand, you will lose everything if in fact you give yourself over to this idol. To the idol of wealth. It's going to cost you your life. Idolatry, covetousness, this is something that breeds death. And what do you suppose is going to happen to a nation that is embracing these things with both arms, that's engulfed in it? The nation is going to die. There's a psalm that's worth noting, worth looking at, that shows just how deceptive this idol is. It's sneaky. This is one of the most sneakiest idols that come in and take over our lives. Psalm 73, verse 1, we read, A psalm of Asaph, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. In other words, Asaph is already telling us, what I'm about to tell you, I almost fell into it. I almost bought it. I was almost destroyed. And what was that? He says, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He was envious of what they had, of the boastful. When you go to the Hebrew on this, it's a little bit richer. And it gives you a little bit better depth to understanding the passage. The word there for boastful in the Hebrew is halal. Now, considering the commentary that was today, I need to add a disclaimer. This is not referring to the Arabic term halal. This is Hebrew. Halal would mean permissible in Arabic. In Hebrew, it actually means praise, to shine, to radiate. Everywhere you see this word used in, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, in Tanakh, and it's actually the root of hallelujah. So how do we find it typically translated? Praise, glory. So read this with that understanding. Verse 3 again. For I was envious of the praise of the glory when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph is stepping back. He's looking in awe at these men who build these corporate empires. It draws you in. It is alluring. This is amazing. Even a man of God like Asaph is warning us, don't let your feet slide into that. This is a sneaky, deceptive sin. Be very careful. And we go to verse 4. For there are no pains in their death. This is what Asaph sees when he looks at the the, the, the boastful of the wicked. There are no pains in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence, Hamas, covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than the heart could wish. They have it all. 
They lack nothing according to the world's standards. This passage is a warning. We cannot fall victim to this trap. It is seductive. It's something that this nation has, though. It's something that they have fallen into. Listen to the words of Yeshua in chapter 12, verse 15 of the Gospel of Luke. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. We as a nation, we're bred to covet some more, and when we're done coveting, we're bred to covet more. It's never enough. And according to Scripture, Colossians 3, 5, covetousness is idolatry. Turn on the television and it's one commercial after another. Psychologically manipulating, attempting to manipulate me, my children, attempting to scheme and subvert our moral compass, all in design to teach us to covet what they have to give us, what they have to sell. And don't worry, because if you don't have the money, no problem, we'll give you credit cards. We'll give you credit cards to buy things you can't afford. We'll give you a line of credit to fill your house full of things you don't need. The nation is a sewage system of covetousness. It's a cultivator of bondage. We are drowning in the lust of our flesh. That is what's happening. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, Paul tells us this. But those who desire to be rich, that's their heart's desire, to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I want to stop right here because there are two things that need to be said. Number one, Paul, look at what he says, the love of money. It's the root of all kinds of evil. In other words, when you go to pursue this, you go to the high place to worship that wealth, the God of wealth, the God of pursuit of what you believe is happiness, all sorts of evil is going to come forth from you. Rather than living water pouring out of you, giving life to others, you will bring death. The second thing I want to mention here, and this is very important that you understand this because I don't want you to fall into another trap. Do not think because your brother has been blessed by God with riches that he is a lover of money or that he is an idolater or covetous. Because you need to consider when you go to the Bible and you look at men like Avraham, Yitzhak, they were wealthy beyond imagination. Abraham was wealthy. He gave everything he had to Isaac. He was wealthy. Job had more than an abundance. He was considered ridiculously wealthy. Go to King David. Go to Solomon. In other words, what I'm saying, just because a man has been blessed by God, that doesn't make him an idolater. Be very careful. Be wise. Do not be foolish. Judge with righteous judgment. So we go back to verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The Apostle Paul, he reveres, reveals here that those who are seduced by the riches of this life, they actually end up piercing themselves with sorrow. Many sorrows. This is fascinating to me. You remember that story in Matthew chapter 19, the young rich man, he comes before Yeshua. What must I do to enter into the kingdom of God? 
Yeshua responds, keep the commandments. He starts listing the Ten Commandments, and the young man says, he goes, well, all these I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? And he said, sell everything you have and come and follow me. And what does it say? If you continue reading, he turned away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great wealth. And unfortunately, his heart was turned to his wealth. You know, one thing you need to understand, if you have been blessed by God and you are rich, you need to be willing to let it all go. If, in fact, the Lord calls upon you. You have to be willing to let it go. Those who set their sights on riches, when you look out in the nation, one thing I can tell you, with all of them, they are pierced through with sorrows. Some of the most miserable people you'll ever meet in your life are the richest. And think about this for a second. I want you to ponder this. Do you really think it's a coincidence that we are argumentatively the most depressed nation on the earth despite the abundance of riches which have been bestowed upon us? No matter how much we have, it's not enough. It's not enough to make us happy. So what do we need? We need happy pills. We need pills to make us feel better. We need pills to take away the sorrow of the world. All these sorrows that we've been pierced through. But does it work when we take happy pills? No, it doesn't. Because the sorrow never leaves. Which is why we have to keep taking these pills, right? And when they wear off, you're right, then we just take more. And when those pills stop doing the job of covering my sorrows, then the pharmaceutical industry which loves us so much, all they do is care for us. That's why they design these pills. It has nothing to do with profit. And the doctors who are pimping out the pills, who love you just the same, they will prescribe a different pill. Once your body gets used to the pills that they've been selling you before. You want to know how bad it really is? Let me give you just a glimmer. Let me just give you a glimpse into how bad it is. I want to share with you an article in the New York Times. And here's the headline. A glut of antidepressants. Over the past two decades, the use of antidepressants has skyrocketed. One in ten Americans now takes an antidepressant medication. Among women in their 40s and 50s, the figure is one in four. Experts have offered numerous reasons. Depression is common. And economic struggles have added to our stress and anxiety. You see what I'm saying with piercing, with sorrows, and the expectations? We're being pierced through with sorrows, and you can even see this in articles. It's the expectations of what we think we need, what we think we need to be, because they're selling it to us. This is who we need to be. We need to be like the CEOs sitting on billions. You wonder why there's sorrow. You wonder why, you know, the little girls that we have are suffering from anorexia and bulimia. You think about that. Because media is pushing their garbage upon us, telling us that they are, all the women have to weigh 90 pounds. That's ridiculous. So we continue in, in, this, in this ad. Television ads promote antidepressants and insurance plans. Usually cover them, even while limiting talk therapy. It's fascinating. It's not only that physicians are prescribing more, the population is demanding more. Dr. Uh, Motobai said, he goes on, feelings of sadness, the stresses of daily life, and relationship problems can all cause feelings of upset 
or sadness that may be passing and not last long, but Americans have become more and more willing to use medication to address them. It blows my mind. We are turning to the God of pharmakia instead of turning to Yeshua. We have a problem. Look at this, look at this article. Drug epidemic in America. And I've just given you a glip here. The most popular of these antidepressants effects are now has homicidal ideation listed as a side effect. Homicidal ideation is not just killing someone, but it is having a, a, a constant ruminating thoughts of killing and how to kill. And so we have people running to their god of these mind-altering drugs, the god of pharmacia, to their happy pills, seeking to drown this sorrow of the world, and we find up the last state is worse than before. Look at these numbers. I'm astounded. In the World Net Daily exclusive, 70 million Americans taking mind-altering drugs. David Capellian tells an untold story of a nation's rapidly escalating drug dependence. Think about these numbers for a second. 70 million running to the high place, to the god of pharmacia, to mind-altering drugs. We only have just over 300 million people in this nation. 70 million of them are drug addicts. Drugs that they believe they need. Drugs that they believe will make them happy. Drugs they believe that will help avert crisis. What do you suppose is going to happen to a nation that has embraced this, that is running to the God of Pharmacia? Listen to what Revelation 9.20 has to say. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now really quick, again, when you go to the Greek, you get a little something different here. That word for sorceries is pharmakia. Literally means medication. And this is the condemnation that's coming against the people of the last days. They didn't repent of their medication. And by extension, metaphorically, it can be used for sorcery and witchcraft, which, to be honest with you, relates directly to pharmakia. Because I can tell you there are thousands of stories, and that's not hyperbole. I mean, literally, there are thousands on top of thousands of stories. There are even websites that are devoted to telling people stories of what has happened while under the influence of an antidepressant. Everything from someone walking out in the middle of the road, totally naked, defecating, to people killing other people while under the influence of these medications, these mind-altering drugs. What are they doing You need to understand something. Listen very closely. These drugs are opening portals to demons, to demonic activity. Look at the fruit of what is happening. People are actually being killed. You look at some of the side effects, and I'm just going to give you a couple. It's a laundry list of them. Look at some of these side effects. Pyromania, hallucinations, amnesia, agitation, 
abnormal dreams, hostility, delusions, suicidal tendencies, sleep disorders, and it goes on and on and on. 70 million people on mind-altering drugs, make no mistake, we're in trouble. We're a nation addicted to drugs. Instead of turning really and trying to have Yeshua deal with our pains and sorrows, which according to Isaiah 53, that's exactly why he came. To bear our griefs, to bear our sorrows. But Satan's coming in and turning us. Turning us away from the God of creation to the God of pharmacia. It's terrifying. I want to take you back to that exclusive I showed you on World Net Daily. 70 million Americans taking mind-altering drugs. And within the story, we read the following. A recent news story originating at The Fix, which features coverage on addiction and recovery, had this interesting headline. So the writer's quoting the headline. America's number one prescription sleep aid could trigger zombies, murder, and other disturbing behavior. The report includes true stories of murderers and other offenders who have taken the popular sleeping pill, Ambien classified as a hypnotic drug and relates how their defense lawyers successfully argued that adverse drug effects from Ambien should be considered a mitigating factor. I want you to think about that for a second, of what was just said. That is unbelievable. The reality is they understand that when you start taking these drugs, you open yourself up to these things, to these demonic things. Lawless. I, you know, I actually have a story of a couple, believing couple, that I know where the husband took Ambien. Let me give you an idea of opening these portals. He was sleeping, she was on the couch, sitting either reading or watching TV, I don't, I don't remember. He comes out, he went to sleep, he's on Ambien, he comes out, he goes to the fridge, and he comes back, and he's got a can of whipped cream. And he stands in front of his wife, and coats her face like it's a pie. I'm not making this up. He puts the can down on the coffee, and he goes back to bed. The next morning, he remembered nothing. She tried to tell him, you did this. He didn't believe it. He has no recollection of that whole event. Unfortunately, weeks later, his wife came home one day when his husband was supposed to be sleeping. She found him in the car, in the garage, with the car on, sleeping in the front seat. He woke up in a psychiatric ward. This is the effects of these mind-altering drugs. The fruit of them speaks for itself. Portals to demons. I'll leave it at that, right? To say that this nation's at the end of its rope is an understatement. I wouldn't tell you that, oh, well, we're on the path to becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah because we're already there. We are there. We are, we are literally at ground zero. We're rock bottom. We live in utter depravity. We live in a society, just look around you, that calls good evil and evil good. And we'll do anything for the almighty dollar. We'll do anything to obtain wealth, fame, and power. Instead of bringing our fears and weaknesses and trials and tribulations to the God who can really help us, who can cure us, who could give us the strength to get through these sorrows, we turn to the God of Pharmacia. And if that weren't enough, this nation has immorality coming out of its pores. 
showing women half naked on television for the sake of profit. Right? Sex sells. Pornography is the idol of all idols. It's the killer. This is something that I can tell you that whatever it touches, it leaves nothing alive behind. Total destruction. This is an idol that takes no prisoners. It's deadly. It's deadly to men. It's deadly to women. It's deadly to families. Right? Just a click of the mouse, and unfortunately, you can find yourself in a world of iniquity. In this black hole vortex that is sucking men into every day. Never since this nation's founding has there ever been such an easy access to pornography. The innocence of our children can literally be taken in a matter of a second. They're on the computer. If I'm blinking of an eye, our children can be partaking of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Seeing images that they should never see. And those images get burned into their little minds. Satan meant to plant a seed of corruption so that he can water it later on. Any wonder why we have little boys and girls doing something known as sexting today? Unheard of when I was growing up. And let's remember, I'm still young. Unheard of. I mean, I, I actually read an article so troubling, and you may have read it, it was recent. I actually read an article where a daycare provider went into the bathroom and found two five-year-olds allegedly having sex. How does that happen? I'll tell you how that happens. Pornography. Sexual immorality. Total deprivation. Only in America. I mean, it's bad. We are Sodom and Gomorrah. Just look at the stuff we're doing. We now, as a nation, think it's a good thing to have sex education in the public school systems. Never mind the fact that, in all reality, the sex ed and public school system was actually designed by a sick and twisted pedophile. You do your own research. I'm going to spare you the horrific details, but just do your own research on Alfred Kinsey. It's the most sickest, inhumane thing I've ever read. And yet he was the architect in designing sex ed in the public education. Amazing. America is no longer an environment suitable to live in. Not for me, not for you, and not for your children. We're normalizing unspeakable acts. In the 1960s, we had something that was epic. A trend happened. The sexual revolution. Traditional marriage, monogamous relationships within marriage... They're now being portrayed as antiquated, old. It's portrayed as bondage. Sexual revolution was all about freeing yourself, freeing yourself from the bondage, if you will, of morality. That's what it was about. This is something that has decimated everything wholesome in our nation. The whole, make, the whole theme of make love, not war, that spread across the entire country. And it normalized premarital sex, Public nudity, homosexuality, and thus we find our country really, honestly, living uh, in, in the mission statement of the pagans. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. This is how we're living. Do what thou wilt. If it feels good, do it. This is the new law of the land. Paul says in Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. 
For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Mashiach, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. You need to understand, the God of this nation is not Yeshua. The God is our belly. The bellies of the people in this nation are the God's. Their desires of the flesh are their gods. They have set up idols in their hearts. We filled our, heist, uh, our hearts with idol after idol. Wealth, materialism, power, drugs, pornography. And we could go on and on and on with all the various idols that we've set up in our heart. We've engorged our heart. What do you suppose is going to be the outcome for a nation that gives itself over to idolatry? Well, I want to take you back to the passage in Ezekiel because I haven't even gotten to the most frightening part of all of this. Go back to Ezekiel 14, verse 4. Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Everyone of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble in iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols. In other words, You're going to set up all these idols in your heart. You're going to engorge yourself with your flesh. And then you're going to come and present yourself before me. And the Lord's saying, good luck with that because I will answer you by those idols. In other words, you're going to reap what you sow. And we continue in verse 5. That I may seize the house of Israel by their heart because they are estranged from me by their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent. Turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. Verse 7. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel who separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble in iniquity then comes to the prophet to inquire of him concerning me. I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb. And I will cut him off from the midst of my people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Understand something. You are going to know that he is the Lord in this nation very soon. Dropping down to verse 12. This is where things get really disturbing. Regarding our nation and the expectation of what we can have considering our behavior. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. That's what he says. When a land sins against him by persistent unfaithfulness, he's going to stretch out his hand against it. So what do you suppose is going to happen to the United States of America? A land that has done exactly this. A land that has sinned against him by persistent unfaithfulness. A land who is drowning in the blood of over 55 million innocent children. A land who is choking on the idols of their affections. According to scripture, we can expect one thing. The Lord to swoop down, dip his sword in blood. That is what is coming. This is a reality. This is scripture. Now, when a land does in fact sin against the Lord by persistent unfaithfulness, what we see happening in America, what kind of things can we expect to see? What are we going to be looking for to see these things to start happening? 
I'm going to give you an idea of that today, because as we continue in this very verse, the Lord tells us, I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off, that cut off is karat in the Hebrew, it literally means to cut down, to destroy, man and beast from it. These are the things, these are the expectations, some of them, we'll get into others, that you can have, that you can start looking for. These things are going to happen to this nation. There is going to be famine, and there is going to be sword. The very thought makes me sick to my stomach when you realize it is a reality. I don't want the hand of the Lord to come against this nation, right? I want to live in a land that is peaceful, where the blessing of the Lord is upon it. That's the land I want to live. I just want to go about my way. We want to go about our way, earn our living, raise our children, watch them grow, raise them in the ways of the Lord without famine, without sword, right? Now, if this weren't enough, then we have to read this next verse. And this is the verse where all of this was birthed out of. Listen to these words. In verse 14, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. Put that in perspective for a moment. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in the land, living in a land that is persistently defying God, persistent unfaithfulness, only these men would survive. That is one of the scariest verses you're going to read in the Bible today. Right? It shakes you to the very core. I mean, is anyone here living at this caliber of human being? Are you living like Noah? Are you living like Daniel, like Job? Is this the kind of person you are, men and women? If you're not, you are in trouble. Let's take a look at Noah for a second. When the entire earth was reveling in utter wickedness, Noah held his ground. He held his ground in righteousness. And man, you want to talk about a narrow path. Think about this. God killed the entire world. Every human being and beast that was on land, he destroyed with the exception of Noah and his family. One of eight souls. Ponder that, because that puts Yeshua's words and, and, and Matthew chapter 7 into a whole other perspective. Right? Narrow is the gate. Difficult is the way that leads to life. You read the story of Noah, you understand that passage. That's how narrow the gate is. When children of Israel were coming into the land of Israel, how many made it? Two. Joshua and Caleb, two, made it. Narrow is the gate, difficult is the way. Scripture tells us Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Why? We're going to take notes on this, because this is where you need to be. In Genesis 7, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have uh, seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. This is why he was spared. Because he was righteous in a wicked generation. In other words, we cannot cave to the pressures of sin in this wicked generation. You cave, you will die. 
If you cave, you are going to face very soon the wrath of the living God. Part of that blood that will be on his sword will be yours. What about Daniel? Ironically enough, if you remember, Daniel was actually taken captive as a prisoner of war. King of Babylon, as you know the story, King of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he invaded Judah, invaded Jerusalem, and he ended up taking a lot of captives. He ended up killing a lot, and those who, who, who weren't killed were taken captive. Daniel was one of them. And he was actually specifically taken back to, to go back and serve the king. He was put in a special program. However, over time, uh, the kingdom of Babylon, as you know, fell. And as we come to Daniel chapter 6, we find that Medo-Persia had actually come to power. And at this time, Daniel was quite distinguished. He was more distinguished than any of the governors of the kingdom. So he was prominent. He was a prominent man. To the point that the king was actually pondering whether or not he was going to set Daniel over the whole realm. To put things into perspective and how awesome Daniel was, how awesome of a man was. Now, because of this, the other governors we find, they simply didn't take kindly to the king's affection towards Daniel. And I want to share a part of this story to really give you insight into who Daniel really was. The kind of man it is going to take to make it so that you don't face the wrath of God. Daniel 6, verse 4. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could not find no charge or fault, because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall uh, not find any charge against uh, this Daniel unless we find it uh, against him concerning the law of his God. Going on to verse 6. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom and the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish, listen to this, a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now I want to stop here because I find it ironic that Daniel's mentioned as one of the names as only he, this type of guy, would survive the vengeance of God. And yet when we read Daniel and Daniel's story, part of his story is in fact we find when he was in the kingdom, the kingdom of well, now in the hands of Medo-Persia, it was totally lawful for him, pay close attention, totally lawful for him to worship his God until they changed the laws. And the laws can change overnight. And I'm telling you, it's coming. It is going to come. And how are you going to handle that? Let's look at how Daniel handled this. And as you know, the king, he signs this into law. We go on to verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. The law changed preventing him from worshiping the God of Israel. And how did he handle it? He turned his back and went and worshiped the God of Israel. This is, are you prepared? 
for the change of laws that are going to come, that are going to prevent you from being a worshiper of Yeshua? Are you going to turn your back and immediately go and do just that? To go worship the Lord. It's the kind of man that it's going to take to survive what is coming. Even at the expense of your own life. This is what it's going to take to spare you the vengeance of God. Now, as you know how the story goes, reluctantly, you know, King Darius, he puts Daniel in the lion's den, right? And uh, because he signed the decree, he had to do it. It could not be broken. So he reluctantly puts him in there, but even the king went home and fasted. He was completely distraught over the whole scenario. And then obviously in the morning, he runs back to the, to the lion's den to see if God had spared him, having faith, honestly, that God would. And in verse 22, this is what we read. This is who Daniel is. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Noah was righteous and a wicked generation. Daniel was righteous and he would not compromise his faith, even if it cost him his own life when the laws changed. Why was he spared? The vengeance. Because he was innocent before God. Powerful. What about Job? We talked about Job for the next two years. How incredible this man really was. But I'll be brief. Job 1.6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Is this a description of you? Because only if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in the land will they spare themselves the vengeance of God. When the land sins against God by persistent unfaithfulness, are you a person that the Lord wants to boast of? Because if you're not, you have a serious problem. And frankly, all of us have a serious problem we need to deal with, including myself. Because if we fall short of being like these men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, you're going to be in for a very rude awakening very, very soon. And that's a, that's a reality. And the music team can come back up. If you need prayer, if you have idols that you are clinging on to, you need to cut them immediately today. I just encourage you to come up for prayer. And while the music team is setting up, I'm just going to share with you a little dream I had. This might give you some perspective. In this dream, this, didn't, this was just recent, I was taken into a room. This is, this is one of the scary dreams, just so, you, just so you know. I was taken into this room, and within this room were all these demonic creatures, demons. And it was horrifying. Because all these demons were deformed. And they're all moving about. And the room was massive. It was, it was a very large room. And they're moving about as they do. And the dreams seemed to go on forever. And here's what was crazy about it. Two things I marveled over. 
I marveled at the fact of how strong they were. I, I couldn't get my mind wrapped around the fact of how strong they were, and nobody could leave the room. They were not allowing anyone to leave, and they were going through the room, and they were killing and oppressing the people. And having this dream, looking at these things for the first time, and you know, waking up from this dream for the first time in my life, I had a real appreciation for what it means to be set free from bondage. And you look at these idols, all these things and these people in these rooms and all these things that they're being held in bondage to. The other thing that I marveled at was this. And it was, this was the most profound thing I took out of this, is there's no compassion, there's no love in anything that they do. You can't, I kept waiting. Okay, there's so much evil, there's so much hatred, there's so much killing, there's so much oppression. At some point, there has to be a let-up. But there isn't. There's no let-up. That's why if you have bondages, you have to come up. Amen? Because through Yeshua, we can be set free. 